Please open your Bibles to John 3, chapter uh, 22 to 36. John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. This is the word of the Lord. After this, uh, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And there he remained with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with thee across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, Jesus, look, he's baptizing, and all the people are going to him. John answered them, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. For he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I just want to get this out of the way. Yes, today is Super Bowl Sunday. And because of that, our time tonight is probably going to be, let's say, more efficient than usual. Uh, because today is Super Bowl Sunday. That's what we do, I guess. But, because it is Super Bowl Sunday, I think it's very appropriate to use a football quote to open us up today from Vince Lombardi, a uh, famous coach from back in the day. And if you don't know who Vince Lombardi is, uh, you can ask Ken when he comes. Uh, he says, If it does not matter who wins or loses, then why do they keep score? Personally, I must say it always bothered me, even as a kid, when we lost, when I lost a game, or when my team loses a game, my parents would coddle me with, it's okay, you did your best, it's fine, as long as you did your best, it's fine. And it always stung me as a kid, because what it all means is that my best wasn't good enough. Thank you, Mom, for telling me that my best wasn't good enough. So what if the Louisville Cardinals did their best against the Wildcats this year? We still lost. 
But enough of repressed memories and issues. But the truth of the matter is that depending on the situation, it does matter who wins or loses. For one to win, the other must inevitably lose. In football, for one to gain yardage to get to the touchdown, the other team must lose yards. If the Allies in World War II were to advance towards victory, Germany would have had to lose ground to the Allies. And if you remember the Battle of the Bulge, that is exactly what was the case. They had to take that ground to win. And it sounds so obvious, right? One must win, the other must lose. And it is. It is very obvious. And to be really honest, we'd rather win than lose, don't we? Why in the world would I pass up winning for losing? Why would I want that? Why would we want to lose at anything? Who doesn't want to succeed? Who doesn't want to be prestigious and well-known? To be respected and loved by many, to be feared by your enemies, and all of that. And in our passage today, we encounter a group of people, just like us, who want greatness and prestige. And in many ways, they have it. Because they were connected to this guy named the Baptist, also known as John. A very, very prestigious guy in the New Testament, very important figure. Um, had an extremely successful and God-blessed ministry, and people knew who he was. He hobnobbed with the leaders, and a lot of evil men hated him, and the people loved him because he was a prophet. So let's say if I was connected to John the Baptist, I'm good. Right? Yeah, you guys know John the Baptist? Yeah, he, he and I are we're pretty close. We're, we're cool. But there's, all of a sudden, there's this certain man named Jesus. He shows up at the scene and starts doing Jesus stuff. On their spiritual turf. Like, like right across where John was, Jesus was there baptizing with his disciples, doing what Jesus does. Amazing things. And of course, John's disciples, if I were looking at that, all the people were going to him instead of us, I would be tempted to lose my cool. And they did. They did lose their cool. And they reported to John about it. Now put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes. Put yourself there. If you were John the Baptist, if I were John the Baptist, how would you answer them? Hey, John the Baptist, there's this guy who's, 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 who's taking our trademark. I mean, your name's the Baptist. He's baptizing. You like, what, what does it mean, John? It's like, they're all going to him. We're losing our influence. You should do something, like trademark that or something like that. And normally, if we were in competition, we wouldn't want step, anyone stepping on our turf. I want to gain yardage. we got to protect our yards. That's why Heine Brothers had to put their coffee shop all the way down across from the Watterson, because if they were right across from Starbucks, we would both lose money. But, unlike the most of us, John the Baptist's response to them was, and this is also our big idea of the day. We have a big idea for our sermon today. This is it. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. No need to improve what the Bible says. It's pretty clear that's the main point today. However, what I want to do today, by God's grace, is show how this why this increase of Jesus and decrease of us relationship is so 
important and key for John the Baptist, and all and thus to us, and how we should go about heeding God's word in this case. All right, so let's see uh, the context of we are in where we are in John. Uh, most scholars believe that this uh, time in John was on the very onset of Jesus's ministry, in the very beginning, before he goes to the great Galilean ministry, which we are already we passed through in Luke. Right? With Sermon on the Plain, all those miracles in Galilee, we passed through that. Right? That's, we, we went through that with uh, Pastor Andy and Luke. Um, but this is before that, uh, most scholars believe. And the author, uh, we believe, is the Apostle John, uh, who was a very close apostle and disciple of Jesus. So we and most of us can assume that he was here when the, they were baptizing uh, the people there. We can assume that John was there baptizing people for Jesus. Uh, the Apostle John was. And this is probably the reason why the story only appears in John, because this was before Jesus chose the twelve. It was His disciple group was still small. So this is a story that only John knew. And those who were around John. The passage actually divides in a very, very neatly uh, way. It, I would call it a thought sandwich. You know, the main point is the patty right here. Uh, he must increase and I must decrease. And the, the text above it and the text below it actually uh, elaborate on the middle point. So you can give us a surround sound effect. You know, very stereo. So even then they knew 3D. It's pretty cool. Um, so we know the main point, patty. The main point is... He must increase and I must decrease. We can, we can see that from what John is emphasizing. So what are the bread and the fixins that make the delicious, juicy patty good, like even better? So, so there's at least four points that we would go through uh, from the text. Um, the first two are, you can say, on our side, uh, how John sees how he must decrease so Jesus can increase. And the third point would, would be from uh, pulling back the curtain on who Jesus really is to make us see how amazing and how worthy of increasing Jesus is. And we would close on some ser series of questions to ask why this is so important. Okay? So verse 27 says that a person cannot receive even one thing that is less, unless it is given to him from heaven. And that's our first point. John says that true success and all good things come from above. True success and all good things come from above. John the Baptist points us to a very fundamental truth about living in this world. No one receives anything apart from God giving it to them. That means God is supremely in control of everything. A good thing happens in your life? Great. God gave it to you. You're learning a lesson through something bad happening to you? God appointed it to happen. Nothing happens apart from God's control and sovereignty. God is a sovereign God, so it's great also that He's a trustworthy God and He's a loving God. A loving, trustworthy God is in control. So you know when something happens, it happens because a loving, trustworthy God. 
it's in control. I mean, we sing that truth all the time in, with our Romans doxology, right? In Romans 11, verse 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the success of John's ministry and even his ministry itself is given by God. John knew where the goods was coming from. It wasn't coming from his ability to rock that camel suit and eat those uh, honey and locusts and from the desert. No, his, his success is God-given. And you know it's from God because it's a great ministry. I mean, this is what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist himself in Matthew 11, verses 11 to 14. This is Jesus speaking. Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. But the one who is in the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is treated violently, and they violently claim it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, the one who is coming to you. In short, from Jesus' perspective, John is the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. So if you guys imagine Elijah um, calling down fire from heaven, Elisha revealing the, the armies of heaven, uh, Isaiah prophesying amazing, great things, and all the, and this part, like this part of the, most of the Old Testament right here, in Jesus' mind, John is the culmination, the, the final and best prophet, and the greatest of all men born. And that's, that's high praise. That's high praise from Jesus. But even then, we know the Godwardness of his ministry, because the, the least in the kingdom of heaven, the least in Jesus' Christ's kingdom, and the least in his kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. So even then we see how it's still from God. Yes, John was great. But the one who gave it to him is even greater. And if you're in the one who is greater than John, then you're greater than John. So John the Baptist knows that. And if, and with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, if everything is from God, if all good things come from God, what's what's the point to what's the point in boasting? John does not need to boast. John the Baptist does not need to show off why he's this amazing great Old Testament prophet who is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He doesn't need to show that off. That's not his point. That's not his job. And that's not his desire. His desire was to make Jesus known. And because it's all from God anyway. Pause here to ask a question. Uh, do we act as if all we had did not come from heaven? Do we think that? that God, do we think that God is not in control? Do we act as if God is not in control and the one who gave, graciously gave us all things? And it's very, very easy to forget that. Most of the time we act as if nothing came from God. Most of the time we say, oh yes, 
I get this money because I worked for this. I worked hard for this boat. I worked hard for my prestige to be uh, promoted in this company. I did, I did, I did, I did. Me, 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 me. It's very easy to look about, to care about the self, to love the self, isn't it? As an example, I quote uh, this comedian Jim Gaffigan on thoughts about the self. So if you would pardon this uh, quote, uh, it's appropriate, don't worry. Um, he says, I want to look at myself while I work on myself. He's talking about working out at the gym. There's all of these mirrors. Because so, he wants to look at himself while I work on myself. I should do a recording of myself so I can listen to myself while I work at myself while I look at myself. As I leaf through Self Magazine, thinking how I could improve, how can myself improve myself? Maybe I look at my Facebook page and look at photos of myself, read what myself has written about myself. Yo soy muy importante. Of course, this doesn't mean that caring about yourself is a bad thing, but what is our priority? Okay, so I care about myself, that's fine, but. If, if caring about myself blinds me to the fact that myself comes from God, who gave us everything, even our very existence, I, that's, that's totally what God does not want us to do. If God did not want us to wake up this morning, we wouldn't. Our very existence is from God. And John knows that. And that's why he continues in verses 28 to 29. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent here before him. The one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands near him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. John is saying to us there that uh, true joy and fulfillment comes from obedience to what God has called us to do. Second point, true joy and fulfillment comes from obedience to what God has called us to do. And there John the Baptist confesses what he was here to do. He was not the Christ. And he admits that. I'm not the Messiah. Right? And you can even say that his job was big enough, as it were. He had he had bigger he had he already had his problems to deal with, uh, and to add the problem of being the Messiah, like that's that's not his problem. Um, he had another job in mind. His job was to be the best man. This is what John is telling us. So if we think about John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus's ministry. And it ties very nicely with what the Bible tells about Jesus and his church, right? I'm the best man. I'm the man of the bridegroom. The bridegroom is the one who receives the bride. So if you've read, you've read scripture, it already puts out signals in your head. It's like, okay, oh yeah, that's right. The church is Jesus' bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom, and Jesus loves the church. Oh yeah, that's right. John the Baptist sees himself as the best man. And what is the best man's job? For those who have been married here, you would know this. Um, what is the best man's job? The best man's job is not to get married that day or to be the, the center of attention. And if he is, 
he's done something very, very wrong. That's not, that's not what you're supposed to be there for. The best man is to be there for the groom. To be the groom's main go-to guy for stuff. Do you need anything? He's the male maid of honor. He's there to uh, back up whatever the groom needs. The groom needs shoe shining, he's there. He forgot something from the house. He needs to drive and get it because the groom needs to be there and enjoy his day. And you know what? When the groom is happy, the best man is happy because it's not about him and it should never be about him. And when he has done his job, the groom's happy, the bride's happy, everyone's happy. And the best man sees his best friend up there enjoying his bride because they're getting married and being united in Christ. Wow. Best man's life. Yeah, good job, man. Look good. He's happy. The best man never oversteps his bounds. But in doing his job, in remaining in his job as best man, he gets his joy. He is happy. And he should be. In the same way, John the Baptist's happiness comes from doing what God has called him to do. God did not call John the Baptist to be Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, that's great. That's not my problem. I don't have to die for mankind's sins. That's great. My, my job is to point people to Christ. To point them to the one where they can get salvation. The one who they have to be re- reconciled with. And John the Baptist knows that. In many ways, it is the design of God for joy and good to occur when what happens is in accordance to his will and desires. That's a very, very uh, central point in understanding how John thinks about this. It is the design of God for joy and good to occur when what happens is in accordance to God's will and desires. It's very foundational, right? When you think about Genesis 1, God created, it is good. And God saw what he created here, and it was good. God created man and woman in his image, and he saw them, and behold, it was very good. uh, The Apostle John also reiterates it in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So enjoying the love of God, enjoying the love of God, is keeping God's commandments. That's his design. Usually we think of obedience to God as dreary or I'm missing out or it's, it's, it's tiring. I, I, and, and there are times where it does kind of feel like it's tiring. But the Bible reminds us over and over again that what God asks of us is not sadness. It's not pain or suffering per se, but ultimately it's for joy. And that's why the in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, the law, the law of the Lord, in short, the things that God asks us to do, brings joy and pleasure. More to be desired are there than gold, yeah, than much fine gold. They're sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Those are, I mean, if, I don't know if you've ever had honey, it's delicious. And to have the law of the Lord obeyed in your life, knowing that you are doing what God wants you to do what wants me to do that's that's amazing like you know that there's you don't have to worry about man 
Did I do what I was supposed to do this morning? Did I be- did I believe in the Son and did I did I do good works today and uh, did I did I offend God? I don't I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. no. There is a confidence that comes in obedience to God. There's confidence and joy that comes in obedience to God. Another question we can ask ourselves is, what has God called you to? If I'm supposed to do what God wants me to do, then what does God want me to do? And we also have to ask ourselves, what are we happy in? What are we happy in? I mean, it's very, uh, just an example, sometimes I look at other churches. Uh, And I look at our church. I go and I visit other churches sometimes and I see, wow, they have so many members. Man, they're doing so many things. They have a full orchestra in the background. Oh, their choir has very nice robes and they have tambourines and they have dancers. Man, what are we not doing? (laughs) But I'll be honest, there are times uh, that, that, that comes into my head, but to be perfectly honest also, maybe the Lord has not called us to bigness. How does God measure success anyway? Is it bigness of groups? Is it numbers? Is it influence? No. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness what God has called us to do. The Lord has called us to love one another as Christ has loved us. If we do that, we're being faithful. The Lord has asked us as a church to go out and make disciples. And what I see is that we are reaching out to the community, trying to share the gospel to them and making disciples outside and within ourselves. Let me encourage you, that's faithfulness. We are doing what we are supposed to do. And it doesn't matter how many people, really, we have. As long as we are obeying and being faithful to what God has called us to do as a church, that's success. God puts his stamp of approval on that, yes, good and faithful servant. So let us, let us focus in on what God wants us to do, and that is to be faithful to what he has asked us to do as a church. And as a personal example, I can be very envious at other people's success. I can see a lot of my... Uh, 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 batchmates at Southern Seminary thinking about PhD. Oh yes, I've been accepted to the PhD program. I'm studying New Testament and very important. And I am. Uh, and there are times where I personally, I confess this, that I get envious. Man, maybe I should stay and get my PhD. I know. Maybe I should. Ezra's already giving me the uh, look and saying no, yeah, no. Um, but go back. But it's the same issue, right? Corporately and individually, it's the same call. What has God called me to do? <laughs> he has called me to be faithful in what He has asked me to do. I mean, later in John, in John 21 verses 21 to 22, Peter was having the same problem. Uh, he thought that John's job, that Jesus has asked John to do, yeah. That's what you called him to do? How about me? Can I, can I be called with him? Like, can I do what he's doing? Because uh, at the context, John, has told, uh, John tells us that Jesus just told Peter how Peter is going to die for Jesus. Now, I mean, that's, uh, 
That's a very heroic thing to do, to die for the faith. But, I mean, if somebody tells you you're going to die soon, this is how you're going to die, I mean, that's kind of uh, uh, morbid. And so Peter asks uh, uh, Jesus, oh, how about John? Is he going to go that way too? Because I, I kind of don't want to just go like that by my own. And Jesus, in G, in, it's, how do you say, it's very Jesus of Jesus to do this. What if I wanted him to live forever and stay here on this earth? That's not your problem. You follow me. And Peter, to his credit, and because of God's grace, he did. We see him in Acts doing amazing things, brave things, for the glory of Jesus Christ to share the gospel. And tradition tells us that he really did die a horrible death. But Peter knew, and John knew, that the secret to success, true joy does not come from making myself big or seeking every opportunity to improve myself. No. The true success is obedience and faith in what God has called us to do. And that's why John the Baptist gives us the third point, the main point, right? He must increase and I must decrease. Jesus must have preeminence and John the Baptist must stay in the background. Jesus Christ must gain ground and John the Baptist must lose ground. It, and it, that's, uh, that's uh, where he leaves us with. But to hammer the point home, the author, John the Apostle, doesn't leave us there. Yes, all good things come from God, and yes, there is joy in obedience, but why is Jesus so important? I mean, I know that the first two points seems to point out, okay, I must decrease, but why should Jesus increase? What's so great, what's so important about Jesus? Why must Jesus have preeminence? Which leads us to the fourth point. And, uh, Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is worthy of preeminence. That he is worthy of increasing and are decreasing because of who he is and what he has come to do. And that is verses 30 to 36. And just a matter of a, clarity, a point of uh, clarity here. There is some debate about 30 to 36 of whether that was John the Baptist's confession about Jesus or it's a commentary by the Apostle John on what John the Baptist has said. Uh, most scholars think that it's the commentary. I kind of lean towards John's the Baptist's confession. It's really not that it's really not that important, but there I just want to point that out to you that there is some debate here. But the point of the passage, it's a meditative passage. It is mulling through who Jesus is and what he has done. And I hope as we go through what, the, uh, go through what John has written here, that we would come to an understanding like John the Baptist, the Apostle John does. So who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? This Jesus is from above and is above all. So Jesus is from heaven. He is the everlasting one. The, John, the, John 1, 1 tells this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So this Jesus, whom John is speaking, is no normal person. He's not a normal prophet. If prophets are normal, right? He's not normal. He is from above. He is directly from heaven. And not only is he from heaven, 
He is above all. He's large and in charge. And because he is this, he is witness to the heavenly things. I don't know about you. I have not witnessed a heavenly thing in my life, except for the graces that God has given us in this earth. But I have not seen angels. I have not seen heaven. Heaven is for real, but I have not seen it. Um, but he is a witness. He, 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 he not only he was a witness, he was from there. And not only is he in charge and is from above and has seen all these things, he and the Father have a very special relationship that we will never have with God. I'm sorry. This is just between him and God the Father. He is sent directly by God the Father to us and to utter the words of God. I mean, not just utter the words of God, live out. Be the word of God to us, to mankind. I mean, that's very, I mean, and the scripture also tells us that he and the Father are one. Like, how is that even possible? How, like, this is so mysterious and so deep, and I'll be honest, I don't know, I don't grasp everything there is to know about how the Father and the Son are one, but they're two, but they're one. It's, we're we're only called to be humble and just accept that that is the truth. But also, because he is from the Father, the the Lord Jesus gives the Spirit without measure. And this is a very um, clear reference to Old Testament prophecies. In Jeremiah 17, verse 13, uh, Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all those who forsake you will be put to shame, and those who turn aside from you in the earth will be recorded, for they will have forsaken the fountain of living water. That idea of living water in the scripture is is an image of the Holy Spirit flowing and rising up from people. So he is, the, the living water is life. Living water is also uh, connected to the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about in John 17, 38-39, whoever believes in me, Jesus, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as the, yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And in Acts 2, in Pentecost, we finally see the, the gates of living water open, and people receive the Holy Spirit in power. Jesus has come to give that to us. And if you believe in Jesus, that is yours. You have the living water in you. Your heart flows rivers of living water because of what Christ has done. And finally, this is what we see the Son. The Father loves the Son, and all things are given to the Son. All dominion and authority is the Son's. And because all things are given to the Son, that also means that our salvation, the key to our salvation, has been given to the Son. And it is salvation through glorification. And John develops that idea of glorification in a very weird way, as we would say. Usually we think of glorification as rising up and being shown, I am, I am glorious. Uh, when, the, when the king is crowned, uh, when the new queen was crowned, 
Well, when the Pope is crowned, we see that there's regalia and beauty and royalty coming in. The salvation through glorification that John is thinking about, the all things, the loving thing that the little Father has given to the Son, His glory is His death. As the Son must be lifted up. What that meant for Jesus, and what meant John meant by that, is that when He was lifted up through the cross and displayed throughout mankind, for mankind to see. And because of that, we have salvation glorification so what okay okay those are crazy amazing things about Jesus we know okay you've restated the points about how Jesus is amazing and we must increase and decrease so okay Matt we get that how does it apply to us well The Bible tells us a very clear way of doing that. How can Jesus increase and how can I decrease? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The, the, the text makes a very key, very key connection here. Jesus Christ's increasing and our decreasing is intimately related to believing in Jesus and obedience to Jesus. So what we believe about Jesus Christ and what he has done influences how we make much of Jesus and less of us. In other words, if we want to make Jesus increase, we must believe in Jesus, who he is and what he has said and done. Because if we believe in Jesus, if we believe that He is the one who has died for our sins and came back from the dead, we will make much of Him. Because this is what Jesus has done. He who was God became man for us to do the things we can't do, to obey perfectly for our behalf, to die on the cross for our sins and rise up from the dead and ascend to heaven so that we who were disobedient and making much of ourselves could finally be forgiven and make less of ourselves. And Jesus makes that same point in John six twenty eight to twenty nine. What we must what and they they say to Jesus, what must we do now to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you must do. Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. And the stakes are very high. If we don't believe the Son, if we don't believe Jesus, we are not obeying Jesus. And if we do not obey, we will remain in God's wrath. There is no eternal life for us if we do not believe. So, uh, I will ask a few questions and uh, we would be done uh, to hit and bring this home for us. First question is, do we believe in the Son? Ask yourself, do you believe in Jesus? Because if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe that He is who He says He is, you won't make much of Him. If I didn't believe that Jesus is the one who is sent from God to save us from our sins, I will not make much of Him. So ask yourself, do, you believe, do we believe in the Son? second question we can ask is, if we believe, 
if you if you believe if you believe the son if you believe in who Jesus is how can then we make much of the son because remember if one is going to win the other must lose they're there so if Jesus is to increase in our lives to obey Jesus there are things that we need to do to decrease right and to to have that happen Jesus must impinge on our affections and times he must make it difficult for us to be to make much of ourselves Jesus asks us to read his word and to meditate and to memorize and to study his word that takes up our time that takes a lot of time to meditate and read the word but that is decreasing of us decreasing of me time and the increasing of Jesus time like right now um, we are decreasing ourselves we could be having barbecues right now preparing for Super Bowl Sunday but instead you are here hearing God's word and reading God's word that is impinging on me time but you can say that you're increasing on Jesus time that's good that's always good praying that's another way we've been talking we've been talking about in the past that we Praying says to us that we can't do anything by ourselves. I don't have trust in myself, but I do have trust in God. We're already doing this. Uh, how can we decrease? We have fellowship with God's people. That forces me and forces you to hang out with me and you. Sometimes I don't like you. Sometimes you don't like me. But we, we hang out anyway because this is so important to Jesus that we love one another. And another thing that we can do is cut off things that take our away our affections for him. Uh, there, there are maybe there are TV shows that you no need to watch. Maybe there are hobbies that we need to cut down on, in order that I may focus on Jesus. Personally, maybe I need to cut down on video game timing, and instead study the Word of God. It may be different for different kinds of people, but ask yourselves, what can I cut off so that I can focus in on Jesus? And also, we can do hard things for Jesus, very difficult things, like serving in the nursery. Very, very difficult. I've seen, I, I've seen, I've seen what you guys do in the nursery, and it's like, man, you guys are warriors. Um, or take out the trash from the church. No one knows that you're doing it. Uh, and we're glad that you're doing it, but you know, no one really sees that. No one really cares about that. You can give people rides to church and away from church. Uh, that impinges on your fuel. You can use that fuel to go to work and do other things, but use that for the glory of God. Doing good to those who can't give back. There is a lot of opportunity, not just to give our money, that is part of that, but also to serve them and love them. And they won't be able to give it back to you and I guess one of the hardest things we can do is be willing to be forgotten for God's glory it's extremely hard to do this uh, that's why he calls it a cross right service in the ministry may mean people will forget about us those who aspire to ministry those who want to preach or do the things that God has called us to do and that's all of us right this may mean that no one will remember you or no one will even notice that you have done those good things. That means that I could go somewhere 
and preach for how many decades? And in a, in a generation or so, my name would be forgotten. My preaching would be forgotten. My family would be forgotten. And no one would even remember that I existed in this world. And this may even mean not seeing a lot of fruit in our lifetime. And that's painful to, to think about. But the reward, the reward that the Lord opens up to us is eternal life and glory and enjoying God forever. And that needs to be forgotten in this life. So that's how we, how we decrease so that Jesus may increase. And as a final encouragement to us, uh, and as we meditate on uh, the Lord's Supper, so it is very important to think about. Jesus already out-humbled us. Like if, you, if you want to see the greatest example of how we can decrease so that Jesus may increase and God may increase, Jesus already did that for us. He paved the way for us. That's why we remember the Lord's Supper. Jesus became man so that, and to, so that he could die and be unglorified. So that we, who were sinners, enemies of God, can be his children. His glory came hand in hand with his desolation. His glory, his being made much, goes hand to hand with his being made the least on the cross. And because he did this, because he out-humbled us already, God becoming man, we can make much of him. Because in Jesus, if we believe in him, we have eternal life and glory and all the benefits of salvation and being with Jesus. So let me pray for us. We can uh, move on to the Lord's Supper. Father, we confess it is hard to decrease because we are so absorbed with ourselves. It is so easy to be focused on myself. It is so, so easy to only care for the things of myself. But because of what Christ has done, because of who He is, I, we can let go and let Jesus take preeminence and be in charge of our lives. And to finally understand what it means to decrease. So Father, be with us. Convict us of our, of our selfishness and pride. And make us see, Father, that Christ is really worthy of our of our making much of him and worthy of glory and preeminence in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.